of you have heard the, the phrase, cradle of civilization, your middle school teacher might have described it in your geography or social studies class as the Tigris-Euphrates uh, river valley where civilization began. Uh, the first chapter of mankind's history indeed lay between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Whether or not your social studies teacher taught it or not, the Bible makes it very clear. Geographical points of reference for the Garden of Eden uh, provided in Genesis chapter 2 indicate the garden's location in this river valley with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers flowing past this beautiful sanctuary where Adam and Eve tended the garden and the animals and walked with God. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, recorded in Genesis 3, they were expelled from the garden and the human race began uh, and developed from there. Of course, so did murder and every other kind of depraved wickedness. Eventually, humanity reached uh, such perverted and blasphemous conditions that God judged the world by sending a universal flood, literally wiping the human race along with the animal kingdom off the face of the earth. However, God provided mankind with an invitation of mercy and, and grace. They were invited to come to the ark of Noah and be saved from God's wrath to come. Noah preached and warned for over 100 years, about 120 years, which was plenty of time for his warning to literally traverse the globe and for people to respond according to Genesis chapter 6 outside of Noah's family Not one person responded. And that cradle became a grave. After the flood, Noah and his family, remember, disembarked high above that same Euphrates river valley on the mountain of Ararat. According to Genesis 8, that snow-covered mountain which fed the Euphrates river. Noah and all who would come from him were commanded to go out and, Genesis 9, to populate the earth, to enjoy worship with God and obedience with him once again. But Noah's great-grandson rebelled and instead called all of the people back to that river valley to defy God. So the people gathered and built the first city uh, after the flood, a city of rebellion, and Nimrod, that man, became its first Caesar. They also built their Tower of Babel, we studied in our last discussion, dedicated to the stars, moon and sun, the zodiac, which they originated. The Babylonians would become world-renowned in their designation of signs under the sky or of the sky under which people are supposedly held captive. You're literally captive. Your destiny, <coughs> excuse me, your destiny is held captive to the movements of stars and, and planets. And so the Zodiac, which has been discovered in the remains of ancient ziggurats, which are copycat towers of Babel, with their ceilings and their walls painted with stars and planets, they also reveal mankind's worship of the heavens. Those who rejected the creator and had begun worshiping creation goes back to the beginning of of time. Genesis 11 reveals how God then judged the human race again, this time not by water, but this time by confusing the one language of earth, separating people into a thousand different dialects, which of course were not understandable to each other. 
and people scattered around uh, the world. But Babylon has not been completely abandoned. It grew in size and significance under uh, century after century, in fact, until under King Nebuchadnezzar built it into its grandest state ever. 500 years before the birth of Christ, according to Herodotus, the historian, and we'll assume he's telling the truth, the capital city of Babylon was an exact square 15 miles on each side. Interestingly enough, as I researched this this week, it's exactly 25 times smaller than the New Jerusalem, a city also laid out in a square fashion, though much larger than Babylon, which is, in my view, one more attempt by Satan to mimic Christ by imitating Christ's coming capital city. That's really at the heart of human history, isn't it? Babylon then versus Jerusalem, the rule of man versus the rule of God, epitomized by these two cities. The heart of mankind, subtly directed by the fallen cherubim, Satan, desires, in fact, to this day to bring mankind back to and under the power of Babylon. There's little doubt on my mind that Satan believed Nebuchadnezzar was his antichrist. With golden image and an edict that would wipe out the Jews. But God, of course, thwarted the plans of this original world ruler or the one following after Nimrod. But Babylon was indeed magnificent, a magnificent city. Herodotus described it. He saw it, all 60 miles of it, surrounded by a brick wall, 87 feet thick, 100 feet high with 250 towers reaching into the sky as if to tell any enemy army there's no need to even try. The Euphrates River ran through the city diagonally, which separated the city into two sections. The banks of the river as it wound through the city were walled beautifully. Steps led down to the water's edge. The hanging gardens created by Nebuchadnezzar to help uh, console one of his homesick wives Terraced patios with exotic plants were tended by laborers who worked 24 hours a day. The gardens would become one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It may very well be another subtle attempt by Satan to again mimic the Garden of Eden. Perhaps it was his way of making a statement that once again in the cradle of civilization there was a magnificent garden. Babylon was laid out with 25 main avenues that traveled through the city in straight lines. These avenues were 150 feet wide, which is about twice the width of this auditorium. At the end of each avenue were gates covered with brass. Herodotus said as they opened and closed in the rising or setting sun, they looked like leaves on fire. One of these gates was named the Ishtar Gate, named in honor, of course, of the goddess, the queen of heaven, the virgin who bore the son, Tammuz, whom they worshipped. The very gate, by the way, has been excavated. It is on display in Berlin. I have seen sections of the wall of the Procession Avenue in Vienna. A stunning blue stone with still faint, faintly seen dragons painted in gold. Nebuchadnezzar's own inscription was excavated, and he had written that these gates 
uh, and this city was built so that man would stand in awe. And through those gates came a young teenager named Daniel. If there was any doubt that Babylon was greater than Jerusalem, that moment would erase from all the captured Jews any thought otherwise. But you know your Bible perhaps well enough to know that Daniel and his three friends were not intimidated. They did not stand in awe of the city of man, dedicated to the worship of false gods and the zodiac and Mother Earth. Daniel would later prophesy of Babylon's fall to the Medes and Persians in chapter 2 of his book. That's exactly what would happen in Daniel chapter 5. After Darius defeated Babylon, it kind of limped along, if you study its history, and it lost much of its grand reputation, kind of faded a bit. But then along came another world ruler named Alexander the Great, the next world conqueror who arrived in Babylon and decided to make that his capital city. He dismantled Nebuchadnezzar's palace, now centuries old, and he planned to rebuild it to its original glory. But he died in Babylon before he finished. Still later, Napoleon made plans to rebuild Babylon as he raced to conquer the Western world. I have read that, that in the French Department of War in Paris, there are records of surveys and maps of Babylon made at his command. Napoleon had intended to rebuild the ancient city of Nebuchadnezzar, calling it New Babylon making it his capital and the governmental and commercial center of the Western world. He, too, failed. Again, Babylon slipped off the radar of world attention. But now in the last hundred plus years, there was another reason to desire control and make it potentially the world ruler. In a word, oil. Iraq sits on one of the world's largest known crude oil reserves Oil experts believe that Iraq's potential could rival, if not surpass, Saudi Arabia and become the world-leading producer of oil. One author wrote, stabilizing Iraq and rebuilding its city of Babylon into a major economic center for the Middle East has Western oil companies salivating. That was written about 15 months ago. Of course, problems arose in all of this, namely in the form of a tyrant who also had visions of rebuilding Babylon to its former glory. He even declared himself to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. His name was Saddam Hussein. He would spend millions of dollars rebuilding the palace of Nebuchadnezzar on the same plot of ground where the original palace had once stood. You can see pictures of it if you go online. He rebuilt uh, the gate of Ishtar, complete with blue stone and golden animals painted on the surface. The millions of bricks he used to rebuild the ancient city, that which he was able to accomplish, uh, had his personal insignia stamped on each individual brick, just as Nebuchadnezzar had done 2,500 years earlier. He offered $1.5 million to whatever engineer could design and capture the essence and glory of the hanging gardens of Babylon. He even went so far to mint coins that emphasized the connection between himself and his forefather, 
Nebuchadnezzar. He claimed to have been given a vision to restore the once great empire. Mark Hitchcock, in his book entitled The Second Coming of Babylon, he's one of our speakers, in fact, this summer, provided the religious motivation behind Saddam that never made it into ABC, NBC, and even Fox News reports. Saddam not only wanted to ultimately destroy the Jews as he rebuilt this capital city, he wanted to destroy Iran as well. Why? He hated Iranians as much as he hated Jews simply because Iranians were the descendants of the Persians who had originally conquered Babylon and his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, and he wanted revenge. Saddam took on as his personal quest to honor his forefathers then by conquering Persia and the Jews. In fact, before his fall from power, he had republished a pamphlet authored by his uncle, who was the governor of Baghdad, entitled, and I quote, Three Whom God Should Not Have Created, Persians, Jews, and Flies. Saddam wanted to rid the world of Iranians and Jews. I didn't find any evidence that he tried to rid the world of flies. That would have been commendable. But he had several obstacles in his way. One of them was his need for money. His quest to rebuild Babylon created a need for more and more millions. In fact, uh, we now know that it was his need for money that he invaded Kuwait. He wanted to monopolize at least 10% of the world's oil reserves and fund the rebuilding of Babylon. But there was more to it than that. One author revealed that Saddam's attempt to regain control over Kuwait, he attempted it because it was part of the original kingdom of Babylon and he believed it was his property. But he failed to capture it. He failed in his attempt to control the reserves. He failed the subjects too in that raw video smuggled out of Iraq where Saddam was surrounded by chaos and cursing. His own people put a noose around his neck and hung him until he died. Listen, he was only one more applicant for world ruler. He was only one more hopeful king of Babylon. He wasn't the first. He will not be the last. Satan is now even watching at this moment and waiting for the signs of another Nimrod. Another who will rebuild Babylon. Now why would Satan, the enemy of God and God's people, even believe it is possible to rebuild Babylon? Why why is he even seemingly consumed with the concept, beginning in Genesis 11 and forward? Why? Because he has obviously read the record of Scripture. He has read of Babylon's return to worldwide significance and power in the pages of the prophets and certainly in the book of Revelation. He has no doubt studied the Apostle John's account of Antichrist's rule and reign from where? Babylon. And the resurrected ruins of the city of Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar. So that's part of his plan. To take mankind back to that fertile crescent. And rebuild the city of Nimrod and Nebuchadnezzar. Since Genesis 11, when Nimrod was overthrown and the people scattered, 
Satan has longed for and worked for manipulating the hearts of unbelieving world powers to ultimately return mankind to this city. And this empire will one day rise from the rubble. It will signify the unifying of the globe. It will be a return to oneness. Though not one language, it will be one government. It will be one heart united in economy and political strength and and power. And we'll all center in this most fascinating of places, Babylon. So unlike many supposed ministers and scholars and authors, Satan evidently believes the Bible. Defiance to God began with planet Earth's first city, Babylon, in the cradle of civilization. Earth's final defiance against God will again emanate from Babylon in the battle of Armageddon where millions will die in defiance to God. So the cradle of civilization becomes its graveyard. You've heard the phrase from the cradle to the grave. Well, according to biblical prophecy, the cradle is the grave. The cradle of civilization will become the graveyard of civilization as man loses his final duel against God and God brings final judgment to Babylon. Now the Apostle John has given us the details of this in chapters 17 and 18. Turn back to Revelation and let's go to chapter 18, verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every unclean spirit, a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Now, this is basically a repetition of the verdict we've already studied in chapter 17. The angel here, however, describes Babylon as a desolate city that is now sort of a haunted region for demons and vultures perched everywhere like some scene uh, out of an Edgar Allan Poe short story. Babylon, once the city of dreams, is now the city of nightmares. Now, is this really literal Babylon? Could this be a code word for New York or uh, Paris or Berlin or Rome? If we answer that question by starting with the Old Testament, we discover that whenever the word Babylon appears, it always refers to the literal city of Babylon. That city which is in what is now modern Iraq. Whenever Revelation uses the name of a city, if the author wanted us to consider it something other than a literal city, it would add something to the text to make it clear it's not literally that city. For instance, in chapter 11, John referred to Jerusalem as Sodom and Egypt. In other words, he used the word metaphorically. What's interesting is he prefaces that by writing the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, it's important to note that chapter 17, which we studied in our last session, talks about mystery Babylon. 
It is then the metaphorical. It is, it is that mysterious initiator of all that is perverted religiously, spiritually corrupt. However, in chapter 18, the word mystery disappears. And we have it replaced with simply the word city. John refers to numerous cities throughout Revelation. And unless he adds something to let us know he's using the name figuratively, we're to understand it literally. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Philadelphia, uh, Laodicea, Patmos, Armageddon, Babylon. They're all literal places. They're all literal regions, literal cities in the Middle East. Furthermore, the city of Babylon on the Euphrates fits the criteria for the city described in Revelation 17 and 18. Henry Morris writes that apart from any prophetic intimations, Babylon still remains a prime prospect for rebuilding. Not only is it in the beautiful Tigris-Euphrates plain, computer studies have recently shown that Babylon is very near the geographical center of all the earth's land masses, which is an interesting concept especially when you consider the topographical changes that will occur with a final earthquake, what that will mean to continents. It is within navigable distances to the Persian Gulf. It is at the crossroads of the three great continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. There is no more ideal location anywhere for a world trade center, a world communication center, a world banking center, a world educational center, and a world capital. In fact, the greatest historian of modern times, Arnold Toynbee, you may remember he was the historian who said that America was great because she was what? Good. And if America ceased to be uh, being good, she would cease being what? Great. Well, he said that Babylon would be the best place in the world to build a future cultural metropolis. Is it any stretch of the imagination that the future capital of the United Nations Kingdom, the ten-nation federation established at the beginning of the tribulation, should be established in Babylon, end quote. Now, as we've learned, the word Babylon can represent both a city and a religious system that comes out of that city. But Babylon is a literal geographical location on the Euphrates River where its infamous ziggurat, the Tower of Babel, became the polluted fountainhead of false religion that glorified creation and the universe and defied the creator. And the announcement here in verse 2 by this angel is that Babylon is now fallen. It's fallen in the final bowl of judgment as it is poured out. Now John hears another voice from heaven. Look at verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, he's going to judge the city, and those who are believing in Christ are given another special warning to flee unique suffering. Her judgment, then, is justified because she has refused justification by God through Christ. Now, I want you to notice a word that appears several times in this chapter. Her judgment is delivered, verse 7, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously. The only place in the entire New Testament 
where the word sensuously, this word appears, is in this chapter. The word comes from strainos, which literally refers to uninhibited sexual promiscuity coupled with excessive luxury and wealth. Babylon then creates its, her, her own class of perverted, unhinged sexual deviancy along with so much money to burn that they support their luxuriant lifestyles beyond anybody's Imagination. Think of it this way. As bad as Rome was, as immoral as Corinth was, they were never quite immoral enough to be accused of this word. This perverted depth of luxuriant sensuality. The entire city will be a literal playground for the rich and famous and there will be no boundaries to their behavior. And so this unique word will only be used of of Babylon. Their pride and arrogance has no boundary as well. Notice something also that might be easy to miss in verse 7. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never see mourning. This is a quote from Isaiah 47 where Babylon is challenged for believing that she is a queen. That she will rule forever. The phrase, I am not a widow, refers to the fact that all the world's kings have become her lovers. And the phrase, I will never mourn, the verb for mourn is the kind of mourning and moaning that comes from suffering torment. So it's effectively saying we will never, ever suffer the torment of God. Who would would believe that mighty Babylon would ever suffer anything? Who would imagine that the greatest empire to ever grace the surface of planet earth was in danger of utter collapse. I mean if, if, if mighty Babylon says I will never be defeated again. Who would ever deny it? And yet judgment falls and the world watches Babylon burn to the ground. Which is the majority of what we see in this chapter. Three different categories of people are revealed in weeping in horror over the loss of economy and power and wealth and position and and occupation. The first category we could simply refer to as the monarchs of the earth, verses 9 and 10. They lament the fall of Babylon. These are the kings who have lost their power. The second category are the merchants of the earth. They lament the The fall of Babylon in verse 11. They weep and they mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. In other words, they've lost their careers. They've lost their occupation. They have lost their wealth. The third category are the mariners. Look down at verse 17. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor. And as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like this great city? In other words, Babylon had become the commercial center of the world. She's, she's been the clearinghouse with her giant warehouses and, and markets and trade centers, which are now going up in, in smoke. She has traded in every imaginable 
product, including slave trade, verse 13 tells us, where they bartered for slaves. You could translate it even human lives. Life was cheap. Life only mattered insofar as it advanced the kingdom of Babylon. Listen, that is the way Babylon has always operated. To the systems of the world, life is cheap. And now in a moment of time, Babylon has burst into flames. John Phillips, the British expositor, colorfully Expounds, he says, the ships entering the Persian Gulf stand hastily back out to sea. Giant convoys of ships displaying the flags of a hundred nations ride at anchor far from the writhing center of fiery doom. Telescopes are fixed to every eye as the astonished and frightened watch in horror the last agony of great Babylon. Vessels now choke the harbors of the world. Now that Babylon is gone forever, the world's trade is now in ruins, end quote. Monarchs, merchants, and mariners representing every class, every occupation on the planet are standing now, some of them back in their executive suites halfway around the world watching on satellite television as their world goes up in smoke. And they begin to weep And a wail, not often that you see grown men crying in public. Here it is universal. You might circle the repetition of judgment's swift arrival. The phrase, one hour, appears often. Verse 10, in one hour your judgment has come. Verse 17, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, For in one hour, Babylon has been wasted or laid waste. All the millions, all the connections, all the power, all the pomp, all the extravagance, all that seemed to matter is gone. One author put it this way. When money is God and God is gone, all that's left is godless grief. What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses his what? His soul. What you're seeing here in chapter 19 is Pearl Harbor from the American eyes and European eyes. The stock market crash, the Great Depression, the bubonic plague, and the Holocaust all rolled up into one horrifying moment. So the fall of Babylon is predicted in verses 1 to 8. The fall of Babylon is lamented in verses 9 to 20. Finally, the fall of Babylon is completed in the last part of this chapter. Verse 21 says, Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone. Now he's going to use as an illustration this great stone. And threw it into the sea, saying... So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Now the next few verses reveal the the, the complete and utter loss. Music ceases, verse 22. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. In other words, all music is silenced. No more parties, no more revelry, no more singing. There's more work, a career, 
ceases. Careers end. Look at verse 22 further. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. Domestic life ceases. Still verse 22. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. Every ancient home ground its own grain with a, with a handheld millstone. The closest thing we've got to it in our house is that little coffee grinder that I push down. Fortunately, it's plugged in and I don't have to turn anything. Every home had one. No sound of it anymore. No one's preparing food because no one's home. Notice verse 23. It says the lamps are all gone out. Babylon is dark, uninhabited, except for demons, as it were, bewailing their defeat and carry on birds swooping in to feed. Marriages cease. John writes this as if to reinforce there is no hope of ever rebuilding Babylon. Verse 23, for the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. So music, work, marriage, domestic life, commerce, careers, everything imaginable, like a candle has just been snuffed out by the judgment of God in one hour. And the cradle of human civilization becomes the grave of civilization as as Babylon, who orchestrated this global army to march upon God himself, lies now defeated. The return of Christ has, has come in his appearance, one word of his power at the pouring out of this final bowl just after it. The armies of the world are defeated and Babylon is reduced to rubble. The defiance of Babylon against God in Genesis ends in Revelation with one final gasp of defiance. And human history as we know it shifts to the kingdom of Christ. Are we headed there today? And you would think, well, surely there's no interest in rebuilding Babylon on some dusty ruins. But today, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization is pumping millions of dollars into literal Babylon and several other historical sites to rebuild them. With the help of private donors... The UN is hoping to turn Babylon into a thriving center of tourism and commerce. In fact, our own government has recently pledged nearly $1 million of tax money to help rebuild the city of Babylon. Thought you'd like to know where your tax dollars are going. I was invited to join a conference call this past Thursday with Joel Rosenberg. He's the author of a number of best-selling books that, that sort of sift through the news accounts in the Middle East and look at them through the lens of prophetic scripture. I joined about 25 other pastors and Christian ministry leaders on the phone as Joel talked about uh, current issues, the North Korean threat, their alliance with Iran. He talked about the money flowing into Iraq and Iraq's unique position in the coming days economically as it begins to tap its vast oil reserves and develop systems to translate that product into billions of new dollars. Someone had given me Rosenberg's recent bestseller, Epicenter, published by Tyndale. I hadn't read it. And all my books at the office are right now boxed up because of some expansion and the shelves are being painted. And and I thought, well, 
I can't find it. Well, after he talked for some time, he asked if we had any questions. And I asked him if he believed in a future war between Jerusalem and a literal Babylon. And he said, absolutely. He said, in fact, I wrote an entire chapter about that in my book. At that moment, I realized I was the only guy on the phone that had not read his book. (laughs) But he was kind about it. He went on to say this, and I quote him. Everything's moving toward that end. I believe the ultimate showdown will be between Jerusalem and Babylon. I hadn't read his book, but I have read this one. And I couldn't agree more. Well, I got a copy of Epicenter after that phone conversation, even though I think I had one on my shelf that's boxed up. And over the weekend, I, I scanned through it. I found it fascinating to read one incident, and I close with this, an incident that occurred after Saddam Hussein's fall from power. His newly constructed palace on the same site as Nebuchadnezzar's palace, if you can imagine it. Saddam's palace covered throughout in multi-million dollar layers of marble and gold. After his fall from power, in his very throne room, where he declared his claim as ruler of New Babylon, Rosenberg wrote that same throne room was used in a matter of weeks for an evangelical church service where singing and preaching took place to the glory of Christ. Isn't that great? The throne room that declared... Christianity be null and void, of course, now echoed with the sounds of singing. That, ladies and gentlemen, to me is a glimpse into the ultimate future. There is a final battle coming between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. There is a final duel between the Antichrist, the king of Babylon, and and Jesus Christ... Uh, The king who returns to Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem wins. And, And the battle with Babylon that began centuries ago is over. As the kingdom of man has fallen. And it's interesting to me that in the very next few verses, the next chapter of John's record that will begin when we come back to Revelation in the fall, what do you have? You have the followers of Christ singing. The singers include you and me singing in this kingdom of Christ as Christ sits upon the throne. And the lyrics begin with hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to our God. 